1: Yes, indeed. It is the authority. Good morning to you. Thanks for joining us as we get started at eight minutes after the hour of nine o'clock on this Wednesday, the 27th morning of the fifth month of the year of our Lord, 2020. Coming up in about a half an hour, we're going to talk with, uh, I'm going to call him America's journalist. I don't know too many other journalists. And of course, I don't know too many other journalists, period, in other states, but I don't know too many journalists in Ohio that are doing the work that Jack Windsor is doing. And, uh, so I'm gonna call him America's journalist. He's doing at least the great work for the people of Ohio. Uh, but, you know, if they can refer to Mike DeWine as America's governor and Amy Acton as America's doctor, then I can refer to Jack Windsor as America's journalist. Jack Windsor with uh, WMFD TV in Mansfield has been a consistent voice of truth uh, at the press conferences, the daily press conferences that, uh, Governor Mike DeWine and the Walking Lab Coat give, and, uh, he is exposing them for their duplicity and their dishonesty on a regular basis. He has written, now, the only reason I know it's 13 pages is I literally printed it out yesterday, but he has written an amazing piece, um, with all of the news and all of the statistics and all of the findings that you will not hear from uh, the mini me and the um, or mini Mike rather and the lab coat, you will not hear these things from them. Jack put it all into a tremendous article that's on the WMFT TV website, and I printed it. It came out to 13 pages. I don't normally recommend such long reads. If I say, "Hey, you got to read this and check this out," and then call me with your thoughts, I'll generally try to keep it, you know, consumable for you, bite-sized. But this is worth the 13 pages, in my opinion. I printed it and read it, and the reason I printed it is so I can highlight pieces of it and talk to Jack Windsor about it coming up at 9.35. So that's coming up, and you're going to want to hear that. It's very important information. And uh, we're going to start there, as well as – I guess maybe I'll back off on that because I do want to start with what um, the – social media overlords, the technocrats in uh, Silicon Valley, are trying to do to continue to censor conservative voices. And now it is censoring the largest, the biggest, the most prominent conservative voice, that of President Donald John Trump. If you're not following the story, you need to. President Trump, now let let me preface this. Before I get back into Ohio and uh, the uh, COVID-19 and the responses, and everything else. Um, the President of the United States continues to be his own worst enemy on Twitter. I'm just going to say it point blank. I've said it before, and I know some people don't like to hear this, but it's just, it's reality. Over the weekend, Joe Biden was marinating in his racist stew, right? Because on Friday, Joe Biden declared, and we played it for you, declared that if you don't vote for him... Then you ain't black. Then you ain't black. Uh, It's an incredibly racist screed. We've talked about it, what it means. We talked about it at length yesterday with Peter Kersenow. And it was terrible for him. It is killing him. Black people, even black Democrats, are saying, whoa, 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 all over America and all over uh, social media. You don't speak for me. What do you mean you you are going to call me a, a you know a, a, a deny my ethnicity my my race if I don't support you and vote for you? I might vote for you, but it's not because I am black; it's because I am a reasoned thinker. That's you know this is the the response that Joe Biden has been getting has been terrible. Right? People are really outraged at this statement of of real you know taking the black race for granted. And really a racist statement because it's saying they don't think for themselves. They just have to, they vote because their skin is black. They vote for me. It's, a, it's unbelievable. I mean, it was really bad. And he's marinating in this for four days and running until yesterday when President Trump got up early in a really aggravated mood and started firing off just random tweet after random tweet picking fights and advancing conspiracy theories about Joe Scarborough on MSNBC and, and, and an unsolved murder. And, and it's suddenly, it's in, all of the attention turned away from Biden's racist statement to Trump's unhinged attack on Scarborough. Which just, bottom line is, and I know people don't like to hear this, but it doesn't help President Trump re- win re-election. It doesn't. There's no advantage to be gained from these from these tweets. He's just he, he gets so impulsive. He picks up his phone in the morning, nobody's there to check him, and he just starts firing off weird stuff sometimes. And it, it it's one thing to drive the left crazy. It's another thing to harm your chances to pick up independent voters. And when they see these moreover, it bumped Joe Biden off of the front page. It bumped Biden's gaff off the front page, and people are like, "Oh my god!" Because as soon as Trump fired those tweets off yesterday morning, the widow uh, or widower of the uh, you know murder victim, and or the I don't want to give in to get into the theory of that case, somebody that Joe Scarborough worked with, uh, which is an unsolved murderer. But the uh, the widower essentially said, "Oh my god, I am begging you." To take this down, telling Twitter they wrote letters to G- to Jack Dorsey, the owner and CEO of Twitter, saying take the president's tweets down. Don't let him say these things. This is just you know salt in an old wound for them. And because of that, there was a massive campaign yesterday to to ban Donald Trump from Twitter because they have user policies that they go they you know they go by. Now we know they're unfair. Because these user guidelines, if you violate these user uh, guidelines that they have, they can suspend your account or they can ban you permanently. And they do it to conservatives all the time. They allow liberal trash to flow through Twitter's uh, filters without any problem. But they do it to conservatives all the time. So the calls yesterday, because of the president's unhinged tweeting, were for Twitter to ban the president. Now, Twitter didn't do that. But what they did do to satisfy their angry leftist base is they're now slapping on labels on Donald Trump tweets, Donald Trump's tweets. They're putting labels on them, basically saying fact check, uh, and and then they'll they'll uh, include a link about whatever it is that the president was just tweeting about, a link to a CNN or a Washington Post quote unquote fact checker, two of the you know worst. Uh, Examples of mainstream journalism, mainstream media, because of their anti-Trump bias, they'll allow them to fact check and attach it to any tweet that Donald Trump sends. And so... Trump brings some of this stuff on himself. And that's the reason I brought it up. Tr- Trump brings some of this stuff on himself by unhinged tweeting. He just needs to help himself by putting the phone down a little bit earlier every day or don't pick it up while you're still drowsy from, from overnight. Uh, because he just sends some things out in the morning that just don't help his campaign. That's the bottom line. It just doesn't. So, uh, but that's my, that's the extent of my criticism of Trump on this. Now let's get to the real issue here of what Twitter is doing. They have already been silencing the voices of conservatives for really the since the existence, since the um, the genesis of this platform. Now the threats to silence the president, or at the very least, to limit his effectiveness. You just heard on Hugh Hewitt as he was talking with his guest. President Trump has over eighty million Twitter followers. Joe Biden has five million. What does that mean? That means President Trump reaches a lot more people. Now, not all of those are 80 million are fawning, you know, Trump supporters wearing red hats. Some of them are his haters because they go on there to, of course, bash him for everything he says. But he has a massive influence over a massive audience. Look, that's one fourth of the country. Just to put it in terms. Uh, That that to really help you understand it, to give it some context, there's about 330 million people in America. He's got about a quarter of them, 80 million following his Twitter feed. So he reaches a lot of people. He can use it in a very positive way. And oftentimes he does. Sometimes he doesn't. But most importantly, he should have the freedom to use it in any way he sees fit, because that's what free speech means. That's what. Uh, freedom of the press means, and in today's world, social media is almost everybody's little bit of press, a little bit of the fourth estate, as everybody can kind of report what they want to report and how they want to report it. And so now, here we are, um, Twitter taking the unprecedented step of actually marking President Trump's tweets with little notes saying, fact-questioned or fact-checked, and then providing, worse off, providing links to quote-unquote facts as they are presented by some of the president's worst critics, CNN and The Washington Post. This is a story from HotAir.com, which is a part of our Salem properties. Interestingly, the president... They decided to ding him not for his tweets about Joe Scarborough, the ones I was just mentioning, possibly having murdered someone that have caused such an uproar in the media, but for his tweets about mail in voting. This is the first one that they, uh, they decided to do. Maybe they're getting around to the Scarborough tweets. If they're going to systematically fact check all of Trump's recent Twitter musings, here's a, there's a huge backlog to work through. Where do you even start? But, uh, the most important thing here is to know that what President Trump did yesterday As it pertains to the mail-in ballots, for them to attach a little disclaimer saying, not true, here are the facts, get the facts about mail-in ballots, is, is tantamount to censorship. No, they haven't banned his account. No, they haven't blocked him from tweeting. But by attaching things that say the opposite of what he says, they are essentially saying, you don't get free speech and expression. We get to dictate what people think about your speech and expression. This is. these are the two tweets in uh, question from the president yesterday morning. There is no way, zero, that mail-in ballots will be anything less than substantially fraudulent. Mailboxes will be robbed, ballots will be forged, and even illegally printed out and fraudulently signed. The governor of California is sending ballots to millions of people. Anyone, next tweet, anyone living in the state. No matter who they are or how they got there, we'll get one. That will be followed up with professionals telling all of these people, many of whom have never even thought of voting before, how and for whom to vote. This will be a rigged election. No way! Exclamation point. Now, bottom line is, the president is right. The president is right about the rigged voting, which is why the Democrats want mail-in voting to be how the presidency is decided this November. It is far easier for them to manipulate votes... And it's far easier for them to cheat in the many, many ways they've already done it with in-person voting. It's even easier to do when it is mail-in. And they know it. And we know it. And the president knows it. And the president is right to call it out. This is what Twitter decided to flag, though, for the first flag as they announced their new policy, as being untrue. Untrue. And then they click the link, you click the link to get the facts about mail in ballots from CNN or MSNBC. Look, I've given you examples on this program. Morning after morning after morning, I've given you examples of mail, or excuse me, of uh, voter fraud, ballot fraud, many of them with respect to mail, because people often, you know, vote absentee, they mail in their ballots but i've given you countless examples of ballots uh that have been manufactured ballots that have been uh st- uh, uh that have been misplaced ballots that have been found at the last second etc cetera, etc cetera. now you've got examples and i've been giving you these as well of uh particularly mail in ballots that have been supposedly uh delivered by the post office to the right locations being found in different states Different states. In other words, people voting by mail, absentee, don't get their votes counted because they cannot be relied upon. The uh, Postal Service and others cannot be relied upon not to either through incompetence or through malfeasance uh, get rid of these votes. There are countless examples of voter irregularities, we'll call them, associated with mail in voting. And President Trump is right to call that out. And Twitter is now saying we'll stop the president from doing that, or at least we will stop his effectiveness, and we will send his 80 million followers to these links written by Trump haters to discredit what the president has done. So, my friends, I bring you all of this to start the morning because... We're talking about entering a new normal as it pertains to recovering from the Chinese coronavirus. There is a new normal when it comes to free speech in this America. Free speech is only free if Democrats and liberals, liberal technocrats in particular, approve it. Then that speech is free. If they disapprove it, that speech is not free, and that speech will be censored or it will be limited in its reach. And that, my friends, is a problem. 9.22, right back on AM uh, 1420, The Answer, after this. All right, 9.26, we continue on AM 1420, The Answer. Jack Windsor is going to be joining us, America's journalist, as far as I'm concerned, covering... With truth, uh, what uh, very few other people will cover in uh, uh, Ohio's uh, capital every every day. He is uh, at the Capitol building. He is speaking, or excuse me, covering and speaking to Mike Dewine and John Houston and Amy Acton every single day, and uh, trying to dig a little bit of truth out of the myriad of lies that they continue to perpetuate every day. So Jack Windsor will be joining us uh, at nine thirty-five to discuss the latest on data suppression, data suppression. By Mike DeWine, Amy Acton, and John Husted. So that's coming up at 935. Let me get a call or two in here before the bottom of the hour, though, uh, about the Twitter situation. As Twitter has decided to somewhat censor by um, reducing the reach or the effectiveness of Donald Trump's tweets by including anti-Trump quote-unquote fact-checkers literally attached to any tweet that he sends. The president, by the way, really outraged over this. I, I, I didn't get to that part during the first, uh, first um, segment, but President Trump is beyond outraged over this. He says, quote, Twitter is now interfering in the 2020 presidential election. They are saying my statement on mail-in ballots, which will lead to massive corruption and fraud, is incorrect, based on fact-checking by fake news CNN and the Amazon Washington Post. Twitter is completely stifling free speech, and I, as president, will not allow it to happen. Those are two tweets by the president in response to all of this. He's right. I don't know about the last part, though, because I don't know what he can do to stop it from happening. It's a private company. I don't know. But he's right to be outraged over this. Diane is in uh, West Park on AM 1420 The Answer. Hi, Diane. Go right ahead.
2: Hi, Bob. Well, you just spoke to my point. I can't imagine Donald Trump being Donald Trump ever doing anything without purpose and without a uh, a goal or a plan in mind. And perhaps he—I didn't see the tweet um, about Joe Scarborough and et cetera, But um, obviously, it it does bring to the forefront the problems that Twitter is giving him and. And just the whole idea of being able to censor and then put forth false, um, um, I don't know, facts from other sources like CNN. And so it, it, it bottom line is it got the re- desired result. Everybody's aware of it. They know that it can even happen to the president. And it's early enough in the cycle before the election that he's, he's on it, and so are we.
1: Well, you know, he is but he may be doing more damage than he is good to himself. Again, he. nobody is talking about Joe Biden right now. We're supposed to be talking about Joe Biden and the massive, massive uh, mistake that he made with respect to race. And he bumped him right off of the front page. And now, and, and Diane, thanks for the phone call. You said you didn't see the tweets, so let me uh, let me read you those. Um, what the president tweeted about Joe Scarborough, quote, two tweets here. This is yesterday morning, early. The opening of a cold case against psycho Joe Scarborough was not a Donald Trump original thought. This has been going on for years, long before I joined the chorus. In 2016, when Joe and his wacky future ex-wife, Mika, would endlessly interview me, I would always be thinking about whether or not Joe could have done such a horrible thing. Maybe or maybe not. But I find Joe to be a total nut job, and I, knew, uh, and I knew him well, far better than most. So many unanswered and obvious questions, but I won't bring them up now. Law enforcement eventually will, with a question mark. Again, purpose for this? Unknown. There is none. There is none. But what it did do... Was it took Joe Biden off the front page because people went crazy over this, including the widower of the of the uh, uh, woman that uh, we're talking about, her Lori? uh, uh, And I'm not even sure how to pronounce her name correctly. Clasudis, maybe. The widower wrote President Trump a letter, or uh, I'm sorry, wrote Twitter a letter, begging them to remove President Trump's tweets on the subject because it's obviously, like I said, salt in an old wound for him. And there was a follow up tweet or a follow up question, I guess I should say, by a reporter who said, Have you seen the letter written by her husband begging Twitter to delete your tweets, talking about how hard it has been for his family? And President Trump's response was, Yeah, I have, but I'm sure, but I'm sure ultimately they want to get to the bottom of it and there's no statute of limitations. So it's just, why? It's, is this helping you get reelected? That's what I, I what I always like to use as a barometer here. Whenever the president goes on a Twitter rampage, is that, is what you're about to push send on going to help you get reelected? Because if it isn't, then push delete. If it is, push send, and away we go. That's that's the barometer I wish he would use. I wish somebody else would help him use, because it doesn't help him when you have a lot of people siding with a widower of a murder victim, uh, and then and President Trump just deciding out of the blue to uh, to bring the Joe Scarborough long, long, long time conspiracy, Joe Car- Scarborough uh, allegations up. It just doesn't help him win the election. It does not. At this particular point in time, it's just a bad idea. Having said that, however, he has a right to uh, to express his bad ideas on Twitter if he wishes. And Twitter should not be interfering with free speech. Jack Windsor joins us next. now. We do continue on AM 1420, The Answer. Thanks for being with us. We're going to take a break from the social media discussion and what Twitter is trying to do to limit or censor free speech. And now... Talk about the free speech practiced each and every day by Governor Mike DeWine, uh, Health Director Amy Labco, Lieutenant Governor John Husted. That speech is free. It isn't always accurate. And joining us to discuss is, I'm going to call him, I, I said this before you came on, Jack, I'm going to call you America's journalist. If they, if, uh, if if Time and other publications can call Mike DeWine America's governor and Amy Acton America's doctor, which disgusts me on levels that I cannot even express, uh, then we can call you America's journalist because you're the only one. Doing it, doing the right job to hold these people accountable—is that all right,
3: Bob? That gives me goosebumps, uh, even if it is uh, facetious. But hey, it's absolutely all right and I want to say thank you. It's an honor to be with you and the WHK listeners again. Thank you for having
1: me. Well, you're, you're very welcome, and I'm glad you're here, and it's not facetious. I mean it. You're doing work that not, anybody, not very many other people are doing, Jack. Jack uh, Windsor is with WMFD-TV. He's a, a journalist who covers these press conferences every day. If you've heard him on this program, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, he asks questions that I know they are cringing. Hey, Jack, somebody asked you on Facebook yesterday about um, limiting you. Eventually, they're going to ban you from these press gatherings because you ask in inconvenient questions that they don't have answers to, and you bring up facts that they don't want to have uh, exposed, and you said it's starting already or something like that. Are you being limited somehow?
3: Well, it feels that way, Um, but sticking to the facts, what had happened prior to yesterday is that there's a lottery, and so there's a draw. Um, You get there by a certain time. They write your name down. And it goes with a corresponding number. They put numbers in a hat and they draw them out. Um, I didn't see that happen yesterday. The draw happened, you know, away from public eye. Usually there's a journalist that comes over and draws the numbers out of a hat. Um, perhaps I missed it. Um, but I didn't, I did not see it. So I ended up 18. Uh, we'll see how it goes today. I, I don't want to speculate. Um, but it, it certainly feels as if, um, you know, the pressure's on. I'll just leave it at that.
1: Are you, are you getting any more, uh, side eye stuff from other reporters whenever you come in there and say and, and, uh, and ask questions that they feel are, uh, you know, uh, counterproductive?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And it, at times the environment is palpable. There are a couple of journalists that, uh, I've befriended. We chat and their, their audiences are, are saying the same thing that our viewers are saying. So there's a, a common thread there. But it's, um, it's a pretty tense environment most
1: days. Yeah, I can uh, I can understand why, especially when you bring up some of the things that you did in. I I printed it out, Jack. I don't know if you intended it to be <laughs> as long as it was, but your article for the website for WMFD, um is incredible. Governor DeWine suppresses data, disproving COVID-19 policies. I printed it, and I got 13 pages of uh, printer paper in front of me here, so uh, I don't normally tell people to read that much stuff. <laughs> uh, uh, I try to give them more consumable, bite-sized information, but everything you wrote about Jack needs to be known, from the backdrop uh, to, through to the uh, early data, uh, the the uh, their refusal to accept new data and adjust their policies accordingly, and then, most importantly, to the suppression of data. And as time is of the essence here for us, we can't go through all 13 pages of what you wrote about, so I'm going to ask you to thumbnail sketch a little bit of this for me. With respect to the back backdrop, most of us know a lot of this already, but give me uh, a little thumbnail sketch version of the backdrop before we get to the suppressed data.
3: Absolutely. So the backdrop just deals with where where we came from. The Arnold Sports Classic was canceled. That caught a lot of folks' attention. Obviously, the night before the election, uh, the director of health nixed in-person voting the next day. That was a big thing, uh, despite the fact that a common please judge, Richard Fry, declined to postpone the election. And then on, on March 23rd, DeWine announced a two-week shelter in place. And going back, to be fair to the administration, going back to that time, what we were seeing on our televisions and hearing on the radio was what was going on in, in northern Italy. A lot of folks were on board at that time because we were being told, look, we don't know a lot about this virus, and what we saw was pretty horrific. I was on the team of people who said, look, I don't know if I like it, but I get it. And so on the 23rd, they issued the shelter in place. Now, interestingly enough, though, we were told data was not available, but it was. There was early information a week before uh, we had gone into this shelter and and this lockout out of Italy, there was information out of China that really pinpointed who was most at risk. It was the 79, age 79 and above, certainly with comorbidities, and then people who had things like heart disease, (laughs) high blood pressure, diabetes, in all age ranges, but particularly 60 and above. We had that information. The other information that we had that was really important was information going back to the first SARS outbreak, studies on the impact of mental health, as it relates to sheltering. And uh, we also understood a lot about suicides from the 2008 financial crisis Mm -hmm. and there being a 1% increase in suicides for every 1% increase in unemployment. So that information was available. The other thing that was available early on was this modeling that a lot of people were relying upon uh, from this gentleman uh, across the pond, the Imperial College epidemiologist. Neil Neil Ferguson. Yeah. Yeah that model was exponentially wrong and that was that was known really early on he actually backtracked himself on his model's accuracy and by the way that wasn't his first um swing and miss but we had a lot of yeah climate change
1: climate change models was his first swing and miss which is just an embarrassment why anybody would trust anything that this guy does with respect to statistical models after that i don't know but i apologize continue no
3: oh, that's okay so um you know, early on we had some information and, and it seemed, I, I don't want to say it was ignored, but where where they went with the dialogue, they talked a lot about the 1917 pandemic. Well, when you dig into that, the draconian policies that were enacted then made sense because that was really all that they had. The CDC even discusses that right now on their website. They didn't have things back in 1917 like vaccines, uh, antibiotics, antibiotics, which, by the way, the secondary infection, from that pandemic is that was the big second surge, and it was because of infection. Uh, pharmaceutical interventions for therapy; those things didn't exist. And if you remember, Acton was talking a lot then about the tale of two cities. It was Philadelphia, Philadelphia, who was ornery; they didn't they didn't obey. And then you had St. Louis, and St. Louis was compliant, and we were encouraged to be like St. Louis. But look, the world is different today than it was 100 years ago. Technology, communication, vaccines, therapeutic drugs, overall healthcare had changed. What the administration did at that time was really sell us on the idea of these draconian measures. So, I went into in in this article. I'll go on, and please stop me if I get if I get too long winded here. But I went into to things uh, that are suppressed, and suppression is a strong word. But the reality is they are limiting the expression of true information on deaths and other things. I, I talked about the death count, nursing homes, the Not factor, Judge Lucci's decision. And other debatable things, uh, such as surface spread and pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic spread. And, and the article caught attention. I think it's been shared 49,000 times because I think it's resonating. And, and look, this isn't an article that I wrote, uh, you know, just by pontificating and, and meditating. This is information that people shared with me. These are questions that people asked because they said, look, the, the data isn't adding up. And so I'll dive into it. the one for me that was, that has always been a concern is, is the daily, uh, daily death totals. During the press conferences, you'll often hear Act and say, quote, deaths reported in the last 24 hours. Now, what most people don't understand is that deaths reported in the last 24 hours is different than the actual number of deaths in the last 24 hours. And what happens is unsuspecting news outlets pick that information up and they report it, I indicated in the article on May 23rd, for example, the Ohio Department of Health indicated there were 84 reported deaths over the past 24 hours. However, the real number of deaths then was seven. It's since, I understand, been bumped up to nine. But when I reported
1: this... <laughs> hold it on, 80, oh, 84 to nine, right? 84 to yes. nine. So they, overstate, yes, they overstated it by that much. Now, now, what you're saying, Jack, is important. I don't mean to interrupt you, but just to clarify yes, this, yes, when yes. you say reported deaths, those deaths could have been... From two months ago, not just fourteen yeah. days ago, with you know the the incubation period, but it could be from two months ago that they just now are finding out about and quote unquote reporting. But the 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 impact of saying that eighty four people, uh, eighty four deaths were reported in the last twenty four hours it, it, to those who aren't paying attention to that think that eighty four people died yesterday, and that's a that's, that's a it. huge huge um part of of spreading the fear, which is uh, to me a lot more dangerous than spreading the virus.
3: Absolutely. And, you know, there was a headline that went out that day and the headline read deaths more than double the previous 24 hour period. I knew what was going on and I read the article and it gave me anxiety. And so there's this misrepresenting of of data and deaths. It's not the first time, though. During a press conference on April 14th, the governor reported or repeatedly said that 50 people died over the past 24 hours. A reporter stood up and, and questioned that and said, wait a minute, isn't that number actually five? He looked confused and then he referred to act and act and said, I think that might be a reported lag. Okay. That was April 14th. All right. We, we are now at May 27th. Mm-hmm. Let's account for that lag by making sure that we're speaking the absolute truth. And that information, by the way, is available. It's available in the CSV file that's on the state's website, but, but really combing through that takes a lot of energy and time.
1: Uh, very, very true. And by the way, the energy and time you've already uh, put into this, to combing through all of the statistics, is simply amazing. And let's get into some more of this now. When you talk about suppressing data. actually, you know what? Let, let me let me move on to R not. A yeah. lot of people don't yeah. understand what the R not measures, uh, what that yeah. factor is. Can you explain what R not means and tell us what they told us it was going to be, and then tell us what it actually is?
3: Okay, so the R not factor is the number indicating viral. Infectiousness. So, for example, to really make it simple, if I am COVID positive, the R-naught says how many people I'm going to spread COVID to. In the beginning, the projection was that we were at two and a half to five, meaning one person would infect anywhere from two to five people. Now we know that number is 1.0 or 0. 0.8, depending on which press conference <laughs> you listen to. But here's the interesting thing about that. What we know now is that the contagiousness of this is disproportionate in congregate living settings. So what I point out with respect to the R-NOT is that we should be segregating the data from prisons, nursing homes, daycare facilities, uh, you know, adult daycare facilities and, and developmental, uh, facilities because the R-NOT there is going to be much higher. So common sense just tells you if you pull that number out, then the R-naught factor for the general population is probably going to be a fraction of one-to-one. That's important for two reasons. Number one, because we've heard time and again, if the R-naught ascends above 1.0 to 1.2, it will set off alarm bells. Translated, that means, look, we're going to potentially be locked down again. People are going to have to give up their businesses again, and we're going to go back the ground zero. So it's important that we understand the R naught, but it's important that it's reported the right way. If you look at all 88 counties, there are probably eight that are the most dense. And so the R naught might be higher there. So the other argument is why don't we look at each county and really make sure that we're making policy decisions for each county that is a true representation of the R naught in that general population. Heck, New York is what we've, what we've said is the hotbed in America for this virus. And even New York said, look, we're going to go with five different regions and we're going to create policies that are different for those areas. Why are we not doing that here? Does that make sense, Bob?
1: It does. It really does. And, and Jack, what I want to do is is focus in more on those congregate living numbers that you're talking about and the impact they have on the overall numbers and how how skewing that data changes everything that they're doing up there each and every day at these press conferences. But I need to quick, take a quick uh, time out here. Can you stay with me for one more se- short segment? Absolutely. All right. I want to talk about those nursing home deaths and, uh, and why it is that they are uh, counting all of these in with the general population as opposed to separating them out so that we can see what the real threat is for people uh, who are being told not to work and not to socially congregate, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll talk more with Jack Windsor, America's journalist, working for WMFD-TV in Mansfield, right back after this. I oh, know. Free. We continue now with America's journalist, or at bare, at bare minimum, he is Ohio's journalist. He's actually practicing journalism. Jack Windsor, WMFT, MFD TV, in uh, Mansfield, uh, joining us to talk more about this extensive article that he has written, digging inside the numbers uh, and all of the misinformation provided by Governor Dewine, uh, the lab coat, and uh, Lieutenant Governor Husted. So, Jack, we're up to nursing home deaths now, and I want to, exp- uh, I want you to expound upon this if you can. Let me steal a little bit of your, of your thunder, though, from you article. Just two weeks ago, Amy Acton estimated the death rates in nursing homes comprised approximately 20% of the entire Ohio death toll. Reporters and citizen journalists investigated the claim, finds out she was lying. It was double that amount then. And since then, as of at least May 21st, that's less than a week ago, it was at 79%. So 79% of the deaths are happening in nursing homes and congregate settings, and yet again, stealing some of your Thunder Jack Windsor, rather than taking a scalpel to the situation and carving out a policy for the spe- specifically highly uh, vulnerable groups, they took a wrecking ball to it, one size fits all, and just slammed everybody down. Why don't you take it from there?
3: Yeah, n- thank you. You summarized that perfectly. And obviously there are errors here with respect to how we've dealt with this crisis. They seem to come from three things. One is mixing data sets. Two is being slow in our response. And three, probably the most egregious, is the overall lack of focus. Now, I want to point out the state has reported data broken out by senior congregate living and prisons, but did decision makers dig into the data well enough, particularly pertaining to nursing homes, to see the magnitude of the problem? If you go back to what you said here, that just two weeks ago, they thought the death uh, percentage was 20%. Obviously, they didn't dig in and understand the magnitude. So the administration seems to uh, be void of understanding on the total number of deaths up until a couple of days ago from these nursing homes. And that seemed obviously to signal a lack of tight focus on the senior living facilities. So what if they would have focused? What if they would have been more aggressive? What if there would have been you know this com- compulsory action and tactic to test to get out and uh, make sure that they were doing everything that they could do look if 80 percent of your deaths are coming from uh less than one percent of the population it begs the question what are you doing with your time and your energy and your money and the slow response to directives to me can best be seen when if you remember vice president pence called on all governors to perform testing in their long-term care facilities. Hence mm-hmm. announced that on the twelfth. It wasn't until the nineteenth that DeWine took steps to ramp testing and he deployed the National Guard to help out there. But to me, we've taken our eye off the ball. And what I what I also talk about in the article, it was stunning to me that during the press conference on the twenty first, DeWine seemed to pivot away from COVID nineteen issues and started talking a lot about larger social issues, housing, education, transportation. And the nursing home crisis has not yet been solved. And you think about that again. The crisis in nursing homes is condensed to less than 1% of the population. Residents of nursing homes are the most immobile in our communities. So we can easily identify them. We can easily reach them. But now we're talking about policies and turning our attention and money, these gigantic initiatives that will reach 44,825 square miles that comprise Ohio and 12 million citizens. To me, it seems like a match made in hell. Pardon pardon the language, but how do we shift our focus from a crisis that we could actually wrap our arms around and then begin focusing on initiatives that we're trying to implement to affect 12 million Ohioans?
1: Jack, I've got two minutes left. Give me a brief summary of your uh, antibody testing points here, because this is extraordinarily important. I point to New York and Florida, which did widespread antibody testing. Which truly, once you you know expand out to the general population, you know, from the testing uh, uh, demographic to the general population, it lowers what was already a very minuscule death rate or mortality rate even more so when you figure out how many people actually have already had this.
3: Yeah. So one thing I want to start with on that is you may remember a question I asked regarding antibody testing. I tied it to what was going on right when the news out of New York broke that helped us understand that millions there had already contracted the virus. Mm-hmm. And when I asked my question, the governor basically called me a conspiracist. So I-, I wanna I actually wanna congratulate our our viewers and our listeners because that question that I asked in really diving down into hey if this percentage of the population is infected, that means that the, the fatality rate is this. People laughed at that. But you know what I found out over the weekend is that the CDC has actually started implementing that practice. So kudos to, to, to our viewers and listeners who actually helped craft that question. But on the larger issue of antibody testing, in early April, Acton announced that the Ohio Department of Health would commission an antibody testing project that sought to randomly test 1,200 Ohioans. That has not been completed yet that I'm aware of. The purpose of the antibody testing, as you said, is to determine how many Ohioans have COVID nineteen antibodies. The antibody test could do one of two things. The test could undermine the perceived severity of COVID-19 in Ohio, or they could help us understand that we still have a lot of work to do as it relates to living with COVID nineteen. WMFD TV has repeatedly requested copies of contracts with companies that were chosen to do the antibody testing and information on the testing that information has yet to be provided
1: jack i'm going to wrap it with this it's already 10 o'clock but i'm just going to give you 30 seconds or so if you can um, because people have been asking this on your page and uh, in a lot of other places as well what's the motivation here What's the end game? Why is Mike DeWine allowing Amy Acton to be so wrong for so long and yet continuing the policies that were put in place as if those original models that you talked about with the backdrop were right? Uh, what is the end game here and what is the, the motivation in your opinion?
3: Now, man, I could talk about that for a long time and go down several different paths. Look, I want to give the administration the benefit of the doubt where it's possible so I will say this. We all make mistakes. Cognitive dissonance is a real thing. We don't often like to disassociate, you know, with, with facts and with, with reality and point to the fact that we've done that. It's hard for people, especially when they're in political positions. Part of it, I believe, is that Mike DeWine doesn't want to admit that he was wrong. And you've seen the press conferences, he has this uh, ferocious defensiveness about acting. Yeah. And so, you know, the buck stops with him and he's gonna protect her. I'm gonna I'm gonna chalk it up at this point to they don't want to admit a mistake because there would be tremendous political fallout. It would hurt his reputation, it would hurt hers. Now what's interesting and I will leave it at this, yeah. Where this really started to have an impact and where it is borderline illegal is when they shut down our ability to show up and vote in person isn't it interesting now that they say we don't have enough information to talk intelligently about all of this but they're really trying to enact policies that will change the way that we vote in November
1: right interesting right that it is it is, and and Jack, I've I, I thought the same thing, and that's one of the reasons why the president is, uh, and we don't need to get into presidential politics here, but that's why he's pushing back so hard against Gavin Newsom's order in California, for example, that the presidential election in, uh, in November will be, by his mandate, uh, mail-in ballots only, for the safety of the people rather than having them get together in large numbers and vote in person. And that is exactly uh, what a lot of people think as well. Jack, I've got to let you go there. Thank you so much for the great reporting you're doing, the great- work that you're doing and for joining us here on am 1420 the answer we appreciate it
2: bob it's an honor god bless you and thank you
1: 1002 right
2: back after